The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Good morning and welcome to you. It is good to be back. I'm grateful for Pastor Scott, who has preached faithfully the last two weeks, sharing with you how it relates to Who's Your One. I'll say more about that later today. So Celeste and I, Celeste, my wife and I, uh, we celebrated earlier this year 30 years of marriage. So I took her on a cruise and a tour of the British Isles for two weeks. And uh, my first cruise, and I just have to admit, it was a little hard to come home. I don't think I've ever been that chilled out in my life. And those of you who know me well, I don't chill out very easily. Um, I, could, I could get into the whole cruising life there, but it, it was a great time, a great time to be away and a, and a, and a wonderful time uh, with Celeste uh, and, and the joy we have shared together over 30 years. It's always a joy to be with you, and I am particularly happy to share this text as I return. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It's on page 952 in a chair Bible or one under a chair close by you while you're looking for a chair Bible. I also want to let you know if you're a guest that there's a guest card there that you could fill out and let us know that you are joining us in worship today. And if you're online, there's a place for you to do that as well to let us know that you are a part of our time of worship and celebration. So our subject today is preaching Christ crucified. First Corinthians chapter two, I invite you to stand as Andrew reads. First Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we thank you for this glorious message of the gospel, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in our place. We are undeserving of this great love, mercy, kindness, and grace that you have bestowed upon us. And as we come now to study your word, we, we pray that you would stir our hearts to wonder anew at the amazing grace of the gospel and that we would be compelled to proclaim it to others. Speak to us now. Bless the preaching of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. This text of Scripture gets to a very fundamental question for me as a preacher, and it gets to a fundamental question for all of us as followers of Christ. So for me, what, what is the goal of preaching? Why am I doing this? Is it to win people over? Is it to be liked or to be heard? And for you as a, a follower of Christ, for each of us, why would we do something like who's your one? Why, why, would we, why would we think specifically and 
strategically and prayerfully about an individual? Is it so that we win them over? Is it simply that we as a church want to increase our membership or our numbers of baptisms? The goal for both, the goal for preaching, the goal for sharing is that we would proclaim Christ crucified and that we would do so faithfully. This text of scripture is the benchmark for us. There's some real questions that we ought to ask ourselves that I need to ask myself as I stand before you today. Is, is, is our preaching and proclaiming the gospel genuine proclamation? Do we proclaim the mighty acts whereby God is born witness to himself in Jesus? Or do we obscure our proclamation with words and something else that we might think would be attractive? Have we made a firm decision to make Christ and him crucified the theme of our preaching and the center of our living? When we come to the moment of sharing the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, do we experience a proper tentativeness? Do we feel our own vulnerability as we share the gospel in a pagan and sometimes hostile world? Do the results of our sharing demonstrate the power of the Spirit? Quite simply, our lives being changed. The main idea today is this, that we proclaim Christ crucified so that a person's faith will not rest on our ingenuity, but on the power of God. The first point is the simple point. We proclaim Christ crucified. In verse 2, Paul said, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now the word know is a pretty comprehensive word here. It draws together the content of his teaching, what he proclaimed to them, that he wanted to proclaim to them Christ crucified, but the word knowing has to do with his manner of life and also the manner in which he taught, that his life, his teaching, and the way he approached the teaching, all of it centered on Christ. Now let's look back in chapter 1 at verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. If my preaching and if our proclamation of the gospel was done as a result of a survey of modern people, we would do it very different than the Bible. We're not that odd from first century Corinth. People either want to show, give me a sign, give me something fascinating, give me something that wows me, or Give me something profound. Give me something I've never thought about. Intellectually stimulate and challenge me. Now, we're primarily an entertainment culture that just wants to be entertained and give me something wow. But if that's what we did, if we just gave in, how we proclaim the gospel would be very different. But he says, we, verse 23, preach Christ crucified. Now, when we do this, here's what we understand. It's a stumbling block to Jews. It's a stumbling block to people who want to show. They're offended by it. And it is folly. It's ridiculous to the intellectual. 
Someone was sharing me after the service that they went to a funeral recently where the gospel was clear. This man was a follower of Christ and his desire at his funeral was to share that gospel would be clear. It wasn't a lot said about him and a very intellectual, prominent individual in the community was offended by it. Found the funeral offensive. I've had that said to me more than once at a funeral. The gospel offends human sensibilities. But with Paul, we must decide to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what is the gospel? What is, what is Christ and him crucified? 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We must share this simple, powerful, clear explanation of the gospel. That Christ died for our what? Sins. We must get to the sinfulness of man. That we are all sinners. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now this is one of the number one places moderns are going to throw up their hands and say that's ridiculous. It's either one of two things. I'm a good person or I can do whatever I want to do. Don't talk to me about sin. Y'all understand, right, that this is the narrative that's growing. I can do whatever I want to do. For we all have sinned against God. And because of that, we've come short of the glory of God. Something had to be done. And we couldn't do it. So Christ died for our sins, as the Bible has taught. He died for our sins on the cross. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. This in accordance with the scripture. So Christ paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. And he is, we are justified in his resurrection. And that he proves that he is Lord and Savior. This is the gospel. Now, how do these following texts, if we go to 2 Corinthians, tie together the message of the gospel and Paul's life? That I desire to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For we, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now, don't raise your hands here. I wonder how many of you were taught to share the gospel by, telling, by sharing your testimony. I'm going to say something that's going to rock some of you. Sharing your testimony is incomplete and no one will ever be saved as a result of you simply sharing your testimony. If you do not share the gospel either intertwined into your testimony or an explanation of why you were saved by sharing the gospel, no one will ever be saved. We don't proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Christ as Lord and ourselves as servants for Christ. Now here's what Paul's saying. My focus of the message is Christ. He's also saying the focus of my life is Christ. That I am submitting my life to him for his sake. 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as God making his appeal through us. Now, <clears throat> I was in London for several days. Multiple street corners were embassies. 
You knew they were embassies because they were flying the flag of a sovereign nation. That little stamp of ground was a place where that sovereign nation had in the city of London. The people in that, 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 that location represent that country. Their job is not there to blend in and become a part of London. They are there to represent their nation. We, wherever we are, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are representatives of Christ. God's making his appeal through us. Now, what's the appeal? We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is the core of the gospel. The substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. What do you mean by that? That Christ died the death he did not deserve. The wages of sin is what? Death. Not just physical death, brothers and sisters. It's spiritual death. The wages of sin is death. Christ died in our place. Christ, who was sinless, fully God and fully man, on the cross, the sinless Savior became sin. He took our sin upon himself and he died in our place. He took what we deserve so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we might receive now what we do not deserve. We do not deserve the righteousness of God in Christ. But by God's grace and his grace alone, his righteousness is applied to those who believe and who trust in Christ. Now, this message is offensive to many. It is scoffed at by many. Yet again, recently, a group of Southern Baptist theologians collaborated together on a work explaining, this, there's big words, okay? Penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Penal meaning punished substitution in our place. Atonement that he washed or he covered our sin. That, we're, that the righteousness of God is now applied to us. Why did they write on this again? Because this is the number one thing at stake in the evangelical world. If you listen closely to a lot of, quote, evangelical preachers, you don't hear the substitutionary death of Christ being proclaimed. You hear something like this. God loves you and gave his son for you. That's about as far as they'll go. What does it mean that God loves you? What does it mean that he gave his son for you? It means that God loves you, that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. That he died for you in your place. He took what you deserved. The pressure is on. The pressure is on to be more agreeable. To, to proclaim a message that people want to hear. And use this illustration the rest of the day, but it, it's, it's on me. So I'm in Liverpool. I'm walking through the cathedral in Liverpool. Who's famous in Liverpool? The Beatles. So I'm walking through the cathedral. And I walk by and I notice an entombment. And I stop. I stop dead in my tracks. I don't know why. J.C. Ryle's tomb is right there. If 
you don't know who J.C. Ryle is, he was a gospel preacher around the turn of the 20th century. I forgot he was the Bishop of Liverpool. They had a bookstore. All the cathedrals have bookstores in London. I go in the bookstore and it's Christian. I'm looking everywhere. I cannot find it. So I go to the girl at the desk and I said, do you have any J.C. Ryle books? She said, who? I promise you folks, I kid you not. There was a section twice as big in the Liverpool Cathedral for Beatles music than there was for Christian books. And a gospel preacher like J.C. Ryle was not represented. That's where we're headed. And we are headed there at hyperspeed to where the message of salvation is somewhere else other than Jesus Christ. But his church will prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail against her. And it's not going to happen because we become smarter than the world, because we proclaim Christ crucified without human ingenuity and prowess. It says in 2 Corinthians 10, basically this, Paul was unimpressive and his speaking amounted to nothing. But he says in verse 1, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And this word loftiness means preeminence or superiority. Likely Paul's got a sarcastic tone in what he's saying here that I did not come with high and mighty rhetoric. I didn't come with highfalutin words. Why? Why did Paul refuse to use lofty speech and earthly wisdom? The answer is in chapter 1, verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom. Why? Lest the cross be emptied of its power. If Paul had presented the gospel eloquently and with sophistication, converts would have likely been swayed to his ability to speak and not the power of the Spirit. Paul didn't come across as smooth and skilled. Question, was he educated? He was incredibly educated. He was a highly educated man. But he did not hide behind that. Here's how he came. Verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Now this is the opposite of the self-confident orators who showed up in Corinth. Instead, God chose a person like him so that Christ crucified would be the one who's seen and heard, not the messenger. He came in weakness and fear and trembling. That's, that's physical reality. Because in Acts chapter 18, we know that when he first came there, the people of Corinth turned on him. Hostility broke out. People were beaten. He had to leave. It's also a spiritual fear and trembling. Let me just say it this way. It's also a healthy fear. Paul understood the complete inadequacy of the task that was before him. How do you land in a city where the gospel is not known and preach it? Have you ever pondered how in the world the gospel took hold in the first century? How people like Paul would show up in a pagan city like Corinth? How did it take hold? The answer is they preached Christ crucified. He said in 2 Corinthians 12, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. God's power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ 
may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It was good to rest for a couple of weeks. Reality will hit me hard tomorrow morning. I've thought a lot over the last couple of months and years, a couple of years. I've been here a long time. And if you think I've been here a long time because it's been easy, you're wrong. What I decided early on in ministry was I wasn't leaving churches because they got hard. Ministry's hard. And here's what I think. I think some of you have stopped sharing the gospel. Some of you used to be faithful with the gospel. You stopped sharing the gospel because you're scared. It's never going to be easy. You are going to be laughed at. You are going to be ostracized by family and coworkers for sharing the gospel. Paul says in the midst of this, when you're weak, And God is strong. He said, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom and in demonstration of the spirit and power. It's not that Paul was dumbing down the gospel. It's that he didn't hide behind big words and pretentiousness. He delivered a deep, powerful, life-changing gospel message. And the demonstration of the spirit and the power. So, What does that mean? Does that mean people looked at Paul and said, boy, that's powerful preaching. We know different. That's not what they said. It was unimpressive. It wasn't that Paul was a powerful preacher. It's that Paul preached a powerful message. It's the message that is the power of God unto salvation. It is the gospel that brings spirit-wrought conversion. You may or may not know this name, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He preached around the same time as J.C. Ryle in London, Metropolitan Tabernacle. He was a Baptist preacher. He started preaching there when he was 19 years old. He preached a simple message. He preached the gospel message. His dad was a pastor. His grandfather was a pastor. He struggled with severe doubt as a teenager. And he was on his way to church and he ended up in this little Methodist church on a snowy day and the pastor couldn't even get there to preach. And this commoner, that's the word from an English word, this commoner gets up and in broken hackney English preaches the simple gospel. And this doubting young man believed. Why? Because of the eloquence of the preacher? No. Because of the power of the message. And that shaped Spurgeon for the rest of his ministry. It's not that you're to be some powerful person with some powerful means and slick approach. It's that we share the gospel message. Why? We proclaim Christ crucified so that a person's faith will not rest on our ingenuity but on the power of God. The best of clever argumentation may draw some people to you but it won't draw them to Christ. So that, verse 5, your faith may not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. It means conversion happened. People were saved as a result of this gospel message. 
to have your faith rest on God's power in the context of the text here before us is to believe the cross to be the only way to salvation. Being convinced by the work of the Spirit in your own life and in the lives of other believers that you reject any trust in self and human wisdom as a way to God. Would you agree with me in Romans that Paul is clearly teaching that you cannot attain righteousness on your own? You agree with that? Here's what he's teaching in Corinth. You cannot attain salvation through your wisdom. I can't get you to salvation through my wisdom. We're not in an intellectual bantering with each other. Then how are any of us saved? The simplicity of Christ crucified, the simplicity of Christ in our place for our sin is proclaimed to us and the Spirit of God opens our eyes to see. That is the demonstration of the power of God. So that leads to this thought. What's Paul trying to say here? I think he's saying Zechariah 4.6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So are we, we collectively, are we as a people, we gathered in this room, those of you listening who, who claim to be followers of Christ, are we proclaiming Christ crucified? Let's go back to who's your one. Why are we emphasizing who's your one? Why are we doing this? There's two reasons. Number one, lack of gospel witness. A lot of us think we still live in the same South we grew up in. Churches on every corner, revival meetings once or twice a year. Everybody went to church. Everybody trusted Christ. That's over. That is over. Your neighbors did not wake up this morning and think, you know what, I ought to go to church. You can't build some clever building on a street corner and expect that people are going to show up at it. The only way that we're going to penetrate into the community that we live in is that we personally share the gospel. The second reason to emphasize who's your one is not just to get you to witness. It's that you would be faithful with the gospel, that you would faithfully share the message of Christ crucified. We're not trying to elevate success or record numbers or, or, or elevate some kind of method. What I'm going to say in the next few minutes could be proved offensive or confusing to some of you. It's influenced by Max Stiles' book, The Marks of the Messenger. When we elevate evangelism above 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 through 5, we lose the purpose of evangelism. What do you mean? When the goal becomes the decision at whatever means necessary to get the decision, we lose what evangelism is about. Agree or disagree with this. Americans love success. Uh, most of you have never been to the Southern Baptist Convention. I'll just give you a moment to puke. You ready? When they get up and tell how many baptisms the pastor who's about to preach has. Why do we do that? Because this, my friend, this man is successful. Now, he might get up and wag on for 20 minutes and never, ever speak the word of God. He may tell wonderful stories about how his church has grown, but never preach the gospel. I'm not saying that always happens. I'm just saying I've heard it happen. We love success. Woo! Here's what we've lost. 
This is why the church is dying in the West and in America and in the South is because we're looking for success through program and gaining numbers. When what the Bible is teaching is faithful gospel witness. It's faithful gospel witness that results in the salvations of souls by the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to be a people who are more concerned with our faithfulness in presenting Christ clearly than we are with the results. That doesn't mean that we're not deeply burdened over the salvation of a soul. It means that we understand that when we are talking to somebody and we are proclaiming to them the way to salvation, that their soul hangs in balance. I don't want to do something right then to manipulate them to think they've done something to agree with me. Let's just lay this question out some of the ways some of us are taught. If you died tonight, would you go to heaven? I don't know. Would you like to know for sure you could go to heaven? Who's going to say no? And And then some of us were taught this way. Well, if you'll just pray this prayer, then you can be assured you'll go to heaven. What? Where's that in the Bible? Where is it? What does the Bible say? If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be what? Saved. How can you believe in whom you have not heard? The answer is you can't. Brothers and sisters, we proclaim Christ. We proclaim the necessity of Christ because of our sin. We proclaim what Christ has accomplished, what we could not. We proclaim the cross and the resurrection. And we call people to believe. We must be a people who know the gospel. We must be a people who believe the gospel. And we must be a people who live the gospel. One of the other reasons the church is declining is because life and lips aren't going together. What we say has got to go together with what we live. Him we proclaim. This is Colossians 1. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that powerfully works within me. So God doesn't need someone powerful. He doesn't need someone clever to achieve his ends. He doesn't need stories and jokes. There's what he needs. He needs people who are servants of Christ who model humility and weakness, who proclaim the one who is despised and rejected and suffered and died in our place. And that this one who died in our place, he rose again. Are you trusting in Christ? Are you looking to Christ alone for your salvation? Are you trusting in him today? If you are, here's what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to together proclaim the gospel. Say what? What do you want us to do? Here's what I want you to do. For I received from the Lord that I also delivered to you. This is Paul writing in chapter 11. Listen to what he says. 
that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And this he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When we take up the bread, we're remembering that Jesus really came. Son of God incarnate. And the son of God gave himself on our behalf. Broken and despised. In the same way, he took the cup after saying, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Christ shed his blood on our behalf to, to purchase us and to cover us in his righteousness, a righteousness that is not our own. By the blood of Christ, we've been atoned for. Now listen to what he says in verse 26. He's quoting Jesus up to this point. Verse 26, listen to what Paul says. For as often as you, plural, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Back in Psalm 51, when we were taking communion each week over the summer, there was a young man seated down here with his friends. And as he watched communion happen, the Spirit of God convicted him that he was not a follower of Jesus. The proclamation of the gospel among us led to the Spirit of God opening his eyes to his need for Christ. And the gospel was shared and he was saved. This is a picture that we share together. So if you're not trusting in Christ in a moment while people are receiving communion, you need to make your way to my right or left where there'll be people in a blue shirt who can talk with you and share with you about what it means to be a Christian. For those of you who are trusting in Christ alone for salvation, you are welcome to come and to receive a communion. As long as you are recognizing that in receiving this communion, it has no saving power. The saving power is in what Christ has already done. We simply do this to remember what Christ has done. That we are professing the finished work of Christ and we are giving thanks to him for his saving work on the cross. Not just for me, but for us. We do this together. We proclaim what Christ has done. So in a moment after I pray, there are going to be people standing all throughout the worship center holding a, a plate in front of you. In the center is the bread and the outside is the cup. You simply walk up to the person, take the bread and the cup. You return to your seat. Likely you can be seated. Consider what you're about to do. Pray, give thanks to the Lord, and then receive the bread and the cup. After you've received it, stand to your feet and join with the worship team in the congregation as we sing. Let's put our stuff down and let's bow together in a few moments of quiet meditation and prayer before we proceed. Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, my friend? Are you grateful for what you're about to receive? For those of you serving, are you grateful for what you're about to, to give? You didn't do it. Christ did. 
It's what we're doing with the gospel, friends. We're sharing something that somebody else did. It's not about us. This moment is not about us. Lord Jesus, you alone save. You alone save. So we come to remember. So by faith we come. Now overflow us with gratitude and joy and thanksgiving as we take of the bread and the cup and proclaim your death until you come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.